Start my timer. Okay. And here we go. You're listening to episode 222A of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about your mysterious feedback on some of our recent episodes. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. So, Jimmy, we should jump right into it, and we first have some fan art that we got sent. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, it's uh, from Instagram, and it's from an individual named Hope Don't Worry, and she says, uh, today's art lesson, I assume it's a woman, I don't know that, but she says, today's art lesson involved making a collage. Our youngest decided to draw inspiration from Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World podcast and do Skinwalker Ranch, Uh, and she has a picture of um, a piece of paper that has a drawing of Skinwalker Ranch on it. And then on top of the drawing, there are a lot of little Lego figures that uh, are of humans or animals. And Hope Don't Worry says mutilated cow is in the lower (laughs) right-hand corner. And if you look, there is indeed a mutilated cow Lego cow in the lower right-hand corner (laughs) of the image. So that's very creative and awesome that – that uh, we have a young fan who is combining, <laughs> who's doing art projects based on ep- on our episode on Skinwalker Ranch, which was way back in our first year. I know that is awesome. I love this picture. This it's like something one of my kids would do. I love the the, the Lego minifigs thing. That's fantastic. Thanks. Hope don't worry. That was great. So let's get to some of our other feedback. Our first feedback comes from Christopher, who sent snail mail. And Christopher writes, I love the show, particularly when you get into the supernatural cryptid world. You did a great job explaining economics and inflation in your latest episode. I am a cub master to a Cub Scout pack here in beautiful Burke, Virginia. And at each pack meeting, we do a few raffles to excite the boys and give something back. Usually it's a toy or outdoor gear. Recently, some of our wolves, those are second graders, learned about coin collecting, and I purchased some large bills from Zimbabwe, which had had a hyperinflation crisis some years back. I told the boys that by the end of the night, one of them would be a trillionaire. Trillionaire. I just want to emphasize that and really played it up. The boys had a great time, and I figured with your interest in inflation caused by the government, you might get a kick out of it. There's one for Dom, too. And here's a what it looked like. Yeah. And Christopher sent a couple of Zimbabwean $100 trillion bills. Um, in the image, we have uh, the front and the back being displayed. And so I'll have one of them. One of, one of them is for Dom. I was surprised. I mean, I knew about these bills, um, but I was surprised at their physical nature because they are a lot thicker than U.S. paper currency. They're, you couldn't easily crumble them up. They're like cardstock. And they're also um, they're also shiny metallic gold in color. So they're kind of like Willy Wonka golden tickets. Yeah. I, wanna, I can't wait to get mine and I can go $100 trillion like Dr. Evil. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thank, thank you, Christopher. And uh, good, good luck to your uh, Cub Scouts. Uh, I have fond memories with my kids and Scouts. So our next feedback comes from Keith Thompson, who sent an email. 
I'm wondering, are transcripts available for your podcast episodes? If I want to quote with full attribution something that is said in one or more of your episodes, it'd be terrific to be able or to not have to do the transcribing manually. Well, at this point, we don't have transcripts, but we have sort of the next best thing. Um, I These days, and we didn't start this way, but these days, Mysterious World is is scripted. And so I write like a 20, 30, sometimes 40 page script every week for the show. And as a bonus to our patrons, we give those scripts away. So if you are a patron at any level, uh, you'll receive an email every week letting you know that the script for that week's episode is available. And I do deviate and Dom will deviate slightly uh, from the script as we read it, there's a tiny bit of improvisation, but it's it's not substantial. So the script is basically almost exactly what we say on the show. Yes, yes. Our next feedback comes from Julie Gilmore via an email who writes, I think this will probably already be on your list, but just in case it's not, can you cover the alleged Our Lady of Bayside apparitions at some point in the future? I've admittedly got a personal reason for wanting Bayside publicly debunked. Our Lady was alleged to give a lot of messages, including ones relating to current events of the time. One thing she was supposed to have said was that children conceived via IVF wouldn't have souls. This one quote probably sums the rest of them up best. They're all kind of the same. Quote, what he is creating is a soulless monster, a being of destruction for all that it will meet. I say it, for it is not truly a human being, but a thing. My children, a thing, end quote. So like I said, I've got a personal stake in this because I was conceived via IVF. My parents are both Catholic, but my dad's lapsed and my mom was poorly catechized, so they had no idea what church teaching on IVF was. I was raised Catholic, but didn't really get into my faith properly until I was 16, which was when I started looking for answers to my questions. You can imagine how awful it was to Google IVF in Catholic and have a result like the above webpage come up. I still can't quite believe that, despite the fact that the apparitions have been condemned by bishops, some of my fellow Catholics still hold to them. And that, therefore, there are some Catholics out there who don't think I have a soul. Yeah, I'm I, I well, OK, so first thing, Bayside is on the list of future episodes and it is an apparition that has been condemned. It is r- ridiculous in a bunch of respects, including the one you mentioned. The idea that someone born of IVF would not have a soul is. I mean, to be frank, it's it's stupid um, all the way back to Aristotle. It's been recognized that the soul is what makes the body alive. So everything that's alive has a soul. And that's been a standard part of Catholic theology for the last 2,000 years. I mean, you have Thomas Aquinas talking about that. So plants and and animals also have souls. They don't have human souls, but they have souls. Um, Also, right, it's right there in in James chapter 2. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. So James recognizes as an inspired author of scripture that in order to for the body to be alive it has to have a spirit so you clearly have a soul or spirit and um this is just an illustration of how ridiculous uh bayside is um the uh the visionary in this case was simply theologically and philosophically uninformed and um 
I, I, it, I, it, anyone who buys into Bayside is similarly philosophically and theologically uninformed. And, you know, if I were you, part of me, at least a little part of me, would be tempted to use that and go find Bayside supporters and say, I was I was conceived by IVF. I am a soulless thing that has come to destroy you. <laughs> Just like your seer said. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Oh, man. Thank you. Have fun with that. Uh, our next feedback comes from Aga Aquat via email who writes, I'm so glad I stumbled upon your podcast. I've previously listened to a show on YouTube, but after a healing service on a first Friday mass, I've been more and more drawn to learning about my religion. I started listening to relevant radio podcasts and from then to Catholic Answers. And from there, I discovered Mysterious World. I have withdrawn my financial support from that other show due to their political and religious views, and I'm so glad to move it to support you. So I'm listening to all the old episodes of Mysterious World and just listen to Mystery, Mystery of Weight Loss. I have tried low carb with no success, quit alcohol, not an ounce of difference. So then I kept doing that and added IF. Unfortunately, nothing. As a female over 40, the IF was causing me to stress out about it, thinking that it possibly put me in the starvation mode. Don't get me wrong. It felt great. Fasting clears up brain fog, gives me energy, and just overall a feeling of happiness. I even fasted for 12 days. I did lose 10 pounds there, but it all came back when I w went back to one meal a day. Love to hear your thoughts on that when you do a follow-up episode on weight loss. Well, I'll give you a few thoughts now. Um, so one of the things that I like about intermittent fasting is that you can make your body lose weight. You're, and it will burn the fat first, which is what you want it to burn. Um, if one is having difficulty with IVF or IVF with IF, um, then one simply should extend the length of time for one for which one fasts, or during an eating window, decrease the amount of food that you consume during the eating window. And one way or another, your your body has to get calories from somewhere. And if you're not giving it food to get those calories from, it will start pulling them out of fat. Um, in the case of, um, of the 12 day fast you did, it's great that you lost uh, 10 pounds. There may be a bit of, um, I, I, the reason that it came back quickly though, once, uh, you began eating one meal a day again, uh, may be an indication that what you lost was actually water weight because when we are in, a well-fed state, our body stores glycogen in uh, in liquid suspension in our liver. And that's the first thing that our body burns when we go into a calorie deficient state. It goes out, it takes that glycogen uh, store of energy and burns it first before it starts turning to our body fat. And so if you we're eating at one meal a day enough to maintain your body weight, then your body would have likely had this glycogen store. And when you did the longer fast, that was the first thing that got burned. And you may not have had um, 
as may not have had fat burning going on, or at least may not have had as much fat burning going on as one hoped. And so when you went back to one meal a day, if the one meal a day is enough to maintain body weight, then you could have rebuilt that glycogen store, which is why all of the all of the weight came back. So you may not in that first 12 days have been burning fat so much as glycogen causing a loss of water weight, which then came back. Also, the 12-day fast can put some stress. I mean, it's not unhealthy, but it can put some stress on your body. And I know from my own experience that when my body has been put under stress that I gain water weight and it can take a week or so for that water weight to come off again. Um, so I would still encourage you. It's a, it, it sounds like this is a healthy thing for you. You feel better when you're doing it. I would just either extend the, uh, the length of the fast or decrease the, uh, the amount of food that's consumed, the number of calories that are consumed during an eating window, because it is possible even at one meal a day to maintain your body weight. Um, that or even hypothetically gain weight. Um, you know, that's what monks in the Middle Ages did. I mean, they had a one meal a day practice on every day except Sunday, and they didn't starve away to nothing. They maintained their body weights over a period of time. And so if you are using intermittent fasting for um, weight loss goals, and there are other health benefits too, but if you're using it for weight loss goals, then you you do need to one way or another get to a point where you're calorie deficient so that you burn through the glycogen and then burn start burning fat. And that can involve either longer fasts or less uh, intake of calories during the uh, during the eating windows. Great. So the next feedback comes from me, Maria Smithers via email, who writes, I'm probably your biggest fan, just so you know. I cool. recently I recently discovered online an exorcist by the name of Father Chad Rippinger. After watching a few of his YouTube videos, in particular, particular the ones on generational spirits, I'm somewhat perturbed. Several of the claims he was making seemed, to my limited knowledge, to be against what the church teaches on demons and possession. One of the claims he made that I'm almost sure cannot be true was he spoke of a 10-month-old infant being possessed by a demon that had been passed down through family lines. Another comment he made was that three children had become possessed simply by reading Harry Potter and that the names in the book are from real demons and the spells are actual curses. To my, to my knowledge, all of that is incorrect. However, you're the expert and not me, and that's why I've come to you for answers. So I'm familiar with Father Ripperger, and um, I share similar concerns. I know he's an exorcist, but he's making claims that are very difficult to support from Catholic uh, doctrine and theology, like the idea of generational spirits, it where a spirit gets passed down through a family and possesses different people. That's not supported by church teaching. It's not supported by historical Catholic theology. And so I would view that as a highly speculative and dubious proposition. I I will look into it further and, you know, we may talk about it in a future episode, but I'm already suspicious of that. When it comes to um, when it comes to children becoming possessed by reading Harry Potter, okay, three children, assuming that's even true, three children, and how many people have read Harry Potter? Two billion? Something like that? 
Well, you can get possessed in any activity. Uh, some people have vulnerabilities that um, make it possible for, you know, for demons to exploit those. And then that could spiral out of control and they could become possessed. But this is rare. And just because an, an activity carries risk doesn't mean you don't engage in it because life is risk. We are not called in life to avoid all risk. We are called in life to manage risk sensibly. Every time you get in a car, you're taking a risk. You could die in a car accident, but the odds of that happening are so low that it's not worth worrying about unless you're like drunk or something or the driver is drunk. So um, so if you tell me three kids got possessed out of everybody who's read Harry Potter, even if that's true, and I, and I would still want to investigate, is that true? But even if it were true, that's an extraordinarily low order of risk. There have probably been a lot more people who were reading Harry Potter and had heart attacks in the middle of reading Harry Potter. Um, when it comes to the claim that um, that the names in the book are from real demons, unless someone in the book is named Asmodeus, we, th- th- this claim is simply unverifiable because the only demon whose name we know is Asmodeus. He's named in the book of Tobit. Uh, we don't even know the devil's name because Satan is not a name. It's a title. So how would you even know if names in the book are based on real demon names, because we don't got a list of real demon names. Um, Then there is the idea that the spells in the book are actual curses. Um, Well, uh, okay, I have some experience with this, and all of this makes me wonder if Father Ripperger has even read Harry Potter, because I, uh, I when it, when this first came out and the first book was all the rage, I was getting tons of apologetic questions. So I read the book. I was not impressed with it from a literary perspective. I think there are much better books. Um, but I, I, you know, needed to read it as an apologist in order to have an informed opinion. And it so happened I was substituting for a Latin teacher uh, around that time, and I took one of the spells from Harry Potter and had it used it as a classroom exercise. I said to the students, okay, here's this spell. It's from Harry Potter. They use it to repair eyeglasses. The spell is Oculus Reparato. Please parse that for me. And the students thought about it. And then they thought about it some more. And then they thought about it some more. And then they said, you can't. That's not real Latin. And I said, that's right. Not only are these not real spells, these are not even real Latin. It's fake gibberish that has been designed to sound Latinate, but it is not actually Latin. So these are not, these are not, these spells are just not real. (laughs) Yeah. Like uh, just saying Lumos is not, you know that's the spell for making light you're just saying light in latin so yeah <laughs> excellent so our next group of feedback well, comes actually from... in latin light would be lumen lumen right right so it's, yeah if like it's, you said if it's... it's if it's lumos it's even funnier because they've got a greek ending on it on, an, <laughs> on a latin word in in greek the word for light is phos 
Right, right. So, yeah, she wasn't, yeah, uh, Rowling wasn't looking this stuff up. <laughs> uh, our next group of feedback comes from episode 201, The Green Children of Woolpit. And our first feedback is some voicemail from Father Jerry. Hi there, Father Jerry Drummond, and uh, just listened to your wonderful podcast about Woolpit, which is just around the corner from where I live, actually, my uh, uh, stamping ground, as it were. Um, yeah, brilliant. I didn't know any about that, and it was fascinating. Uh, a few of your pronunciations of English town names are a bit off, but uh, uh, these things are difficult. Perhaps there's a, an episode in that of all the weird pronunciations we have of English place names. Anyway, keep up the good work. It's brilliant. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much, Father Jerry. Glad you enjoyed the episode. And yes, English is notoriously difficult to pronounce <laughs> because of its long history and the way we haven't re-standardized pronunciation as, or spelling as as pronunciation drifts over time. And we have the same thing here in America. Um, in my home state, there is a town, uh, Arkansas, where I grew up, there is a town that is, its name is Spanish for the cow. And because there used to be Spanish settlers in the area. Um, And so looking at its name, you would think it's the town is named La Vaca, but it is not. The town is actually named La Vaca. And so there there are similar similar things in Texas, where I was born. There is a town you would think its name is Palestine, Texas. But it is Palestine, Texas. So, yeah, it's a local difficulty everywhere in the English-speaking world. (laughs) All right. Our next feedback comes from Mark Rothermel on Patreon, who writes, I concur fully with the disaster of cultural history infecting the ancient medieval uh, historiography in academia today. There's a real dearth of medievalists producing solid scholarship at university presses. Rachel Fulton Brown is one exception. Eventually, the academic profession will pay a price for this direction of study. One issue with this story is that it probably did not fill a full episode. The conclusion of it being a health diet issue is not surprising, and any other theories, as Jimmy correctly mentioned, are absurd and without merit. Perhaps in the future there could be a twofer episode that knocks out two famous mysteries from the spreadsheet, or even a triple for ones that have simple solutions. I'm continually a fan, but respectfully, this episode did not need to be a full hour. Well, I uh, I appreciate your perspective, and I thank you for your feedback. I have considered trying to do episodes where I deal with many mysteries, where we have two or more mysteries that would not fill a full episode, and I bundle them together to make an episode. I've certainly considered that, um, and we may experiment with that in the future. In In terms of this episode, my sense was that it did warrant a full episode, and, um, you know, I write in a way that I hope will be entertaining to people. I try to write in a way that I find entertaining and interesting, and I hope that that translates to other folks. I know it won't always work, but that was my philosophy, and I respect people who have other perspectives. Bob Mills, uh, Barb Mills, sorry, Barb, writes via email, when you started the episode about green children, I was reminded of the Blue Fugates of Kentucky. There have been several accounts written about them, which I found quite fascinating. They were, of course, shunned and treated unfairly. Yes, and I'm aware of the the Blue Fugates, and they are also on the list of, uh, of future topics, so we will be talking about them too. Sawyer Getz writes via email, Hey, Jimmy, 
I'm a second year med student, and while listening to your most recent episode about the green children of Woolpit, I was left dissatisfied by your dismissal of genetic causes of jaundice that would improve with eating. There is an inherited condition called Gilbert syndrome in which a person undergoes a short period of jaundice during times of illness, stress, and even fasting. These children were very hungry, and going for a while without food could have triggered an episode of Gilbert syndrome. I love the podcast. Keep up the great work content. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate uh, the you raising the possibility of Gilbert syndrome. In my research, I did not find a reference to it. And I also didn't find a reference to jaundice. That was a theory that I proposed as a possibility and then knocked down based on at least the way jaundice normally works. If the children had been away for long enough from their home that they went without food and it caused uh, Gilbert syndrome, I, I, I would wonder about the plausibility of that because it sounds like from what you said, you need to be without food for a significant period of time, not just a, a few hours or a day. And it didn't seem like they'd been away from their home for that long. So just something to think about, but thank you for raising that possibility. Uh, Tim Lucchese on YouTube writes, here's my theory and here are four reasons I'm wrong. Jimmy, you're my hero. <laughs> Thank you very much, Tim. I do try to be just as harsh on the ideas that occur to me as I am on other ideas, um, because I know that the first thing that pops into my mind is not always right. So I want to, as St. Paul says, test everything and hold fast to what is good. Malsiklan O'Kelly on YouTube writes, This is a great episode and a great subject. I really love the semi-formality of this show. I love how cautiously and slowly you unfold the case, examine the sources, explain the context, etc. So much programming online and in traditional media is quirky these days in a very contrived and tiresome way. I enjoy the comparative lack of quirkiness on Mysterious World. Which is not to say that you don't use humor, you do, but not in the kind of frenetic, let's not take anything seriously way that's too common these days. You actually take the subject seriously. I know what you mean. And I've heard uh, podcasts where they're, they're, I've heard podcasts, in fact, dedicated to mysteries, where they're trying to like do a blend of mystery and comedy on kind of an equal footing. I mean, I have no problem using comedy as spice on Mysterious World, just to, you know, accentuate the entertainment value of the show. But doing the whole thing in terms of let's play this tongue in cheek would be contrary to the actual serious purpose of Mysterious World, which is to think about these subjects. And so, yeah, I've I've heard similar shows and and I haven't found them worth coming back to for regular listening myself. I'm I'm more focused on the research. Tyrannosaurus Imperator on YouTube writes, Great episode, but I was left with a couple questions about your analysis. If the children were Flemish and taken in by a knight who lived less than 10 miles from the Flemish village and who may have just participated in the slaughter of the village, why didn't he recognize the children's language or clothing? If he had, why was that not recorded by the historian who knew the knight? Possible explanation, he recognized their language or clothing and pretended ignorance to protect them. Uh, I would agree. Um, that's a possible explanation. Um, it's a little hard to know at this distance in time, but I would say that's certainly possible. 
Uh, he also added, uh, I missed this part. Another question. How do children who are tending flocks develop an iron deficiency? They should have access to mutton, which is a red meat with lots of iron. Well, they may not have eaten the mutton. Um, th- one of the things that, uh, I mean, you'd think they've got meat on the hoof right there. Um, they they would end up eating it, but not necessarily. Uh, there are situations where people do keep flocks and don't eat from their own flocks. Um, if, for example, if you look in the parable of the prodigal son in Luke's gospel, one of the complaints of the older son who stays at home is that his father has never given him a goat to eat and enjoy with his friends, even though they keep flocks. And so there are situations where people, especially if they're poor, may be keeping the 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 meat in the flocks to sell to others uh, so that they can then get that money and use the money to buy cheaper food that they can eat themselves. So I wouldn't rule out the idea of an iron deficiency developing for that reason. Also, this could be an, a detail of the story that is not accurate. The children may have made up the fact that they kept flocks because they, they were never seen with sheep. They just said that they had been keeping flocks. And that could have been something the children made up as part of a cover story, or it could have been something that got mangled in transmission. Maybe that's something someone misremembered about this in the telling of the story. Berserkly writes on YouTube, if you eat a lot of carrots, you'll turn orange. If you eat a lot of green beans, can you turn green? So um, carotinoderma is the condition where your skin turns orange, and it's caused by overingestion of, well, it's caused by keratinemia, which is excessive consumption of beta carotene, um, which is a kind of vitamin A. Uh, the green color, in, and it is, and beta carotene is found in carrots. So yes, you eat too many carrots, you you will turn orange. The green color in vegetables is caused by chlorophyll. But uh, chlorophyll breaks down very quickly in the body. Our digestive system, you know, decomposes it. Beta carotene, on the other hand, is harder for our bodies to eliminate, which is why beta carotene can build up in the skin. So that's the basic reason why you can turn orange by eating too many carrots, but you won't turn green by eating too many Brussels sprouts um, because the, the chlorophyll breaks down much more easily in our metabolism. However, beta carotene isn't just in carrots. It's in all vegetables. So you might hypothetically get carotinoderma even if you're eating greens. Yes, hence the Jolly Green Giant. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, he, he's not the orange, the Jolly Orange Giant. I know, I know. I was, was trying to get, get a Green giant joke out of that, and I missed it. So <laughs> okay, I'll move on. <laughs> Works as a dad uh, joke. Yes, it does. It does. So JTR Latinist writes on YouTube, thanks for sharing the story. It wasn't that long ago I would have been completely closed off to a story like this because of my strictly literal upbringing. I would have assumed it was just ramblings of a superstitious people or a fable. This has really humbled me to considering things I've never considered when it comes to old stories like this one. I found it is my pride that leads me to this thinking, because I assume that in our modern times, we're so much smarter and better than our ancestors. I'm coming to understand our ancestors may have more sense of the divine and wisdom than we do today. Thanks for sharing the story and expanding the possibilities in my mind 
God bless. Well, thank you very much, uh, JTR Latinist. I'm glad you found the episode helpful. Um, and I appreciate while our ancestors were not um, were not any. Well, actually, there is some evolution for upward pressure on on uh, human intellect. So we are actually probably a little bit smarter than our ancestors were a thousand years ago. Um, the And that's a subject we can talk, the evolution of human intelligence, we can talk about in the future. But, um, but I appreciate the caution about that you have about tales from this period, because if this were a thousand year old story that we didn't have early accounts of, I wouldn't have even covered it on the show. Because if a story's changed hands over a thousand years and not been written down, then that is something, you know, where our first documentation is way late, then there's too much room for rumor and legend and folklore to develop. It was the fact that I was able to find two early accounts written in the same century as the events that gave me enough confidence to even cover it on the show. Um, so once you have that early evidence, yeah, something is definitely much more coverable and we need to take the perceptions of the people at the time seriously. But if something is written, uh, you know, two, three, four, five, six hundred years after the event, it's really not something that can be counted on historically. And uh, Herot on YouTube writes, obviously there were aliens that came from a parallel world that also has Christianity and St. Martin. After coming through the portal that took them across space into our parallel world, they unfortunately later got taken and replaced with fairy changelings, hence the change in skin color. Interesting theory, Herot, and we will be talking about fairy changelings in the future. <laughs> All right. So our next feedback, our uh, next group of feedback comes from our episode 202 on blue panic orbs. And the first feedback comes from Professor Charles, who sent in some audio feedback. Hi, Jimmy and Dom. I was really excited to hear the episode on the blue panic orbs. I've always thought they were one of the scariest things that you've talked about on the show so far. I wonder if you would connect the blue panic orbs from Skinwalker with orbs that were in the Colaris UFO incident in Brazil. Also, there were some of the Shupa-style crafts at Skinwalker that also showed up in Brazil. And then finally, I know there were some blue orbs or something like that that were seen around the Dyatlov Pass incident. So I wonder what you think about some connections about blue panic orbs or blue orbs in general that have been seen at other sites like in Brazil and at Dyatlov Pass. Thanks again for continuing to produce such a great show. Well, thank you so much, Professor Charles. Um, I am aware of um, of the other sites that you mentioned and reports of um, of of orb like activity there. Uh, we discussed Skinwalker Ranch back in episode thirty six and the Kalaris UFOs in episode seventy four and Dyatlov Pass in episode twenty four. So we've already done full shows on that. If you haven't heard them, you can check them out. For Skinwalker Ranch, go to mysterious.fm slash 36. For Kolaris UFOs, go to mysterious.fm slash 74. And for Dyatlov Pass, go to mysterious.fm slash 24. So I'm aware of the connections. Also, um, one of the uh, craft, one of the 
seeming more mechanical craft, as you may have mentioned, that was reported at Skinwalker Ranch also sounded like one of the craft that were reported at Kolaris. Um, but whether these were exactly the same things happening in these different places is something that I don't really know enough about to have an opinion. But I do think it's noteworthy that similar phenomena were reported. The outlier, I think, is Dyatlov Pass, which um, the reports of um, the stranger things there seem less well-founded. And our next feedback is also voice feedback. This one is from Stephen Wang. I actually work as an electrical engineer um, here at a local engineering firm in Johnson City. And so I find uh, the relation of the blue panicord properties to ball lightning particularly insightful whether it's air or whatever other materials could be contained in the ball lightning that aren't typically electrical, there has to be such huge potentials uh, to create these visible, this constant emission of light. And that has a lot of explanatory power with respect to the other phenomenon seen at Skinwalker Ranch. For example, when the blue panic orb came near light bulbs, that huge voltage potentials actually have the ability to dim light bulbs uh, directly. The mechanism of that is that the huge potentials with respect to the ground are creating a huge voltage potential field initiated by that ball lightning that is actually overriding the potential that the power grid is trying to put on each specific light bulb. The voltage potential created by the ball lightning in the air uh, related to dielectric breakdown and, and the, the field that's creating might actually override the voltage potential that the power system is trying to put by design on the light bulb. And therefore, if the voltage forced by the ball lightning reduces the voltage seen by the light bulb, then it's receiving less voltage, it's receiving less current, it's receiving less power, and therefore emitting less wattage of light. This is in the electricity field is called, known as a brownout, which happens for other reasons. And a, a second interesting note about that is that, you know, light bulbs connected to the power grid might be more susceptible to this. But when you mentioned the episode with the flashlight, the thing about the flashlight is it's it's an isolated electrical circuit powered by a battery. And because the battery is local, and the source of the power right there in the flashlight, uh, the flashlight might be less susceptible to uh, induced voltage potential fields created by ball lightning. And therefore, so when they turned the flashlight on and shined it at the blue panic orb and the blue panic orb responded, that actually might be an indication uh, that a flashlights can do better in that sort of environment where a blue panic orb is the one creating huge, huge voltage fields all around the area. Thank you very much, Stefan. And um, I appreciate the perspective of an actual electrical engineer and how this could be related to brownout phenomena and why a battery powered device might be more um, able to function normally in such a situation. The question of exactly what happened with the lighting system is also discussed by our next correspondent. Yes, Logan Bailey's Fun With Trains writes on YouTube, 
I think whatever orb dimmed the lights in the house actually could have drawn power away from the electrical circuit in the house by acting as a conductor from the overhead power lines that feed power to the home and causing what is known as a single phase, as in the U.S. powers provided by two 120-volt lines into the home to provide 240 volts. If there's a break or a shorting of the circuit, like a tree limb closing the connection or a fuse or safety device failing, it could cause the lights to dim and some more heavy appliances motors will still try to operate or will shut off from some low-voltage sensors. I've had the issue happen to me several times in the past from some pretty severe storms that have caused portions of one of the lines to be knocked down or a tree has fallen onto the lines causing the issue. Also, I've heard of blue balls occurring from some older coal miners. I live in southern West Virginia for context. Usually they would form after some type of outage in the mine, usually a power outage or power loss to the section of mine they were in. What is usually believed to have been the cause was a pocket of methane being ignited by the teeth of the miner striking a rock or other hard object, hard object creating a spark igniting the methane. A more regular occurrence that is still rare but has more probability of being seen is blue water, where an aquifer or pocket of water is pressurized by methane, and the mining causes a small breach or hole in the rock or coal, bituminous coal is porous, and the pressurized water will shoot from the pinhole with some force and in the right conditions will catch fire, thus creating the blue water. And I've seen uh, video footage of towns where the water supply has gotten uh, methane into it and people can light can turn on their kitchen sink and light the water on fire. So very interesting <laughs> phenomena. Uh, the next one comes from jo uh, Joseph Enright on Facebook. Really good breakdown. I've seen something eerily similar. These signature blue color, size, and movements are all things I witnessed when I was about 12 years old. I remember telling my chemistry teacher what I witnessed, and that's when I first learned about ball lightning. That's really cool that you uh, may have been able to see ball lightning yourself. It's a rare phenomenon, and so being able to see it is awesome. Timothy Jones writes on Facebook, Are there many reports of blue panic orbs having been seen indoors? And wouldn't this argue against them being natural phenomena like ball lightning or will-o'-the-wisps? Well, in um, I don't know how many there are. I know we mentioned uh, one, uh, at least one case, where a teenage boy was being um, assaulted by, by orb-like phenomena um, as part of the hitchhiker effect, you know, we talked about it in the episode. Um, but and and it would seeing seeing you know panic orbs or other orbs indoors would argue against them being will o' the wisps because will o' the wisps are you know gaseous gas pockets um, that wouldn't easily get into a house. But ball lightning is something else. Uh, it's an electrical phenomena phenomenon and it is reported to get into houses it's reported to come through windows and come through walls perhaps and so um it's strange enough that it it might be it it has been reported to get into houses and so i wouldn't see um interior indoor activity of orbs as an argument against them being ball lightning in particular Rebecca Barfit sends an email and says, Jimmy, I love Mysterious World. Thank you for examining such interesting topics. The ball lightning hypothesis doesn't seem to explain the extreme panic people felt. Do you have a theory about the panic? 
Well, the panic could have been purely natural, but actually I think the ball lightning hypothesis could uh, if could explain the panic because um, exposure to extremely low frequencies um, can have an emotional effect on human beings. Um, and we'll have links to a couple of articles on the effect of chronic exposure to extremely low frequency uh, electromagnetic frequencies and also lightning and extremely low frequencies that um, can have an effect on on human perception and behavior. Also, infrasound, which hypothetically, I guess, could be generated by uh, by, you know, uh, the same causes as ball lightning. Um, infrasound also, which is sound that's too low in frequency for us to hear it. It also can have an emotional effect on people and these things can generate fear and so forth. So I would think that either probably the the fear they experienced was just natural or it was something that could have been caused electrically or via infrasound. The next feedback comes from Mur Solace on YouTube, who writes, Jimmy seems to assume that the only way demons can manifest or interact with our world or with humans is through possession. This seems an unreasonable assumption to me. There have been many Judeo-Christian thinkers who say that angels have a broad range of functions in the universe. It's been suggested that some of these functions include being overseers and guides of areas or elements of nature. If this is true about angels, and if demons are fallen angels, it seems reasonable that demons could have abilities related to whatever job they were originally created to do, such as manipulating nature. Calling something ball lightning is like explaining one unexplained phenomenon by labeling it as another unexplained phenomenon, since as far as I know, ball lightning has been rarely documented and its causation, method of formation, behavior are no better understood than our blue orbs. Okay, so, um, well, first of all, I, I don't think that the only way demons interact with our world is through possession. There are other ways, there are other forms of demonic influence, but as always, you need evidence if you want to propose something. Um, just because the idea was proposed, for example, that, um, that angels push the planets around and that's why they move has been proposed doesn't mean it's a good explanation. Gra I mean, it's, I can't rule it out that angels are pushing Mercury and Jupiter and Mars around the sky, but gravity seems to explain their motions very nicely and more simply. Um, so not, not all ideas that have been proposed in history are good ones. Um, furthermore, you had people in history propose the idea that the planets in the sky have souls, and that appears not to be the case. Souls are what keep living things alive, and none of the planets appear to be alive. In terms of ball lightning, now you said um, that uh, by appealing to uh, ball lightning as an explanation for the blue orbs, I would be explaining one unknown phenomenon by another unknown phenomenon, and you could easily switch over to demons as an alternative hypothesis. Um, but I don't really think that's the case. Ball lightning is something we have some understanding of that appears in other contexts. And so what I'm doing is explaining what I was doing by proposing that as a possible explanation for the blue orbs. I didn't say they are ball lightning, but from um, 
by proposing it as a possible explanation, what I was really doing is explaining a less well understood phenomenon, namely the, the blue orbs, by a better understood phenomenon that is better established. So it wasn't explaining one unknown by another unknown. It was explaining an unknown by a better known uh, system. Uh, furthermore, if you, uh, while I don't rule out that demons can manipulate nature just like angels can, and according to some, even human souls can, um, you still need evidence. And you, it should not be your default interpretation. If you were to go that way, then you would end up explaining gravity by demons, because it could be that the gravity we see is really being caused by angelic beings. And, and if that's the case, maybe they're fallen angelic beings. And, and that route lies madness. Um, so you need evidence. You, you should not just assume everything is a demon just because it's mysterious. Uh, Lucas Rothstein on YouTube writes, is there any way we could get Joe McMonagall to remote view Skinwalker Ranch and see what he comes with, up with? Or better yet, contact Edwin C. May or the folks over at IRVA, the International Remote Viewing Association, to organize a mass psychic, mass psychic probing of the ranch. I'd want to see what happens. They may produce some interesting insights. Well, um, I don't know if Joe McMonagall has done it, but I do know it has been done. Um, as part of the, um, I think they may talk about it in, uh, the recent book on Skinwalker Ranch, the one that just came out that we quoted from in the Blue Panic Orbs episode. Um, I know some of the viewers that participated in it, and I believe they did some remote viewing of Skinwalker Ranch in, con in connection with the secret of Skinwalker Ranch. TV docu-series. Um, I, I know that not all of the material that they came up with by remote viewing ended up being aired. But uh, I don't know, Dom, you've seen that series. Have, have they covered any remote viewing results on it? Um, trying to recall, I don't think that they've done remote viewing. They've done a couple of different things, including uh, a Kabbalah uh, yeah, I remember rabbi that. Uh, mm -hmm. and some other things like that. But I I don't recall the a remote viewer. I, I may be wrong. My, my memory may be off, but I don't recall it. Okay. Well, I know from conversations I've had with remote viewers that it has been done. Um, they had a team of different remote, remote viewers looking at the site, and they got some interesting results. But I'm not aware to the extent that those results are in the public domain yet. Uh, and our next uh, episode, uh, our next comment is uh, related, in fact. Nick Medley writes on YouTube, It's fascinating you pointed out the commonality of radiation and radiation-related sickness. In Season 1 of the Skinwalker Ranch series, the crew uncovers a radiation hole, as they called it. After lifting a lid off a large hole leading underground, they found it was emitting dangerous levels of radiation, and one of the crew members was ill afterwards. I, radiation hole sounds like several different things, including <laughs> the town, including like maybe a mining town out in the desert in New Mexico. Yeah, we're going to go to Radiation Hole, New Mexico, and get some radium. Um, right. I haven't seen that episode. Uh, Dom, do you have any comments on it? So the professor who's leading the the whole thing um Oh, he's the famous one who's also connected yeah. to the UAP phenomena uh, in, in, in OSAP. Uh, 
and sorry, I can't remember his name, but he, there, at one point there's a large cistern at Homestead 2, I think it is, where they 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 move the large concrete lid and after that happens uh the professor they they get they have their geiger counters and they get a, a reading and the professor ends up having a couple of small burns on his hand and on his head which they they, they refer to as radiation uh related mm-hmm. and other in, in in the later most recent season there was another incident there where someone collapsed um suddenly uh, in fact, I've had a couple of different people collapse suddenly near that uh, cistern. So, um, yeah, there's a, been some incidents uh, related to radiation levels. Uh, and in fact, there's been a number throughout the series, and not just there, but in other places where they've they start doing um, disturbing the ground, and suddenly radiation levels spike um, mm-hmm. in relation to other phenomena. So, are they wearing dosimeters at this point? Yes. They okay, do. good. And they have uh, Geiger counters, and they also have uh, EM uh, receivers in order to, you know, to document anything of this nature where these things happen. And, and they do go off at times, mm-hmm. uh, and they, 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 you know, evacuate everybody from a, from an area when they have these cases. So Okay. Uh, it should be pointed out just to um, – I mean, this could be something paranormal, but it also could be something purely natural. There is there are radioactive minerals in uh, in the Earth's crust here in the United States after um, after World War Two, when we were ramping up our nuclear arsenal for the Cold War, there were um, they the government got the public involved in uranium prospecting. And so uh, there were people who would go around, including in the Southwest, looking for deposits that could be used. And so it could be there's a deposit of, of, of uranium or something else radioactive under Skinwalker Ranch. And, yeah, if you disturb the ground, it's going to expose the radiation. So yeah. there could be a purely natural explanation for that. And at the end of the last season, they they did some drilling and they were coming with all kinds of exotic metals and materials. Mm -hmm. So it's entirely possible that there's, you know, that sort of thing under there. So I would agree with that, that assessment. Uh, Okay, so our uh, next bit of feedback comes from episode 203, uh, All Dogs Go to Heaven. And the first feedback comes from Dominic, who says... Hi, this is Dominic. I'm a really big fan of the podcast, but I have a question about your latest episode about animals going to heaven. Why do we need them? Because God will supply eternal happiness for us. Thanks. Bye. Okay, so the it's a good question. The question assumes that the animals would be present in the afterlife based on human needs, you know, because you ask, why would we need them in heaven? Well, um, maybe it's not, maybe they're in the afterlife, not because of us. Maybe God, just like God is giving happiness to us in the afterlife, maybe God wants animals in afterlife, not for our sake, but for the animal's sake, because he wants to give happiness to them, too. So um, I wouldn't make the assumption that everything that happens in the afterlife has to be based on humans and human needs. Uh, 
Um, you know, also God chooses the means by which he gives us happiness, including happiness in heaven. And he could choose to include animals as one of the ways that he gives us happiness, just like being reunited with our deceased human relatives and, you know, our loved ones and our friends uh, will also make us happy in the afterlife. So he could uh, include, if he chose, being reunited with animals that we knew and loved like our pets as another way of giving us happiness in the afterlife. Very good. Uh, Next feedback comes from Lauren on Patreon, who says, I'd like to throw out another possible piece of evidence in favor of animal afterlife, deathbed visitations. This phenomenon is something I watched my grandfather experience in the final weeks of his life when visitors twice came to his room that only he could see. Conversations with his hospice nurses revealed not only that not only is this not particularly uncommon amongst the dying, but that reported visitors can also include deceased pets. So if experienced hospice workers don't raise an eyebrow when otherwise lucid patients mention their childhood dog stop by alongside great grandma, well, that may not be proof enough of animal afterlife for everyone, but it's good enough for me. And I agree. Deathbed visions and uh, experiences like this are also a form of evidence. Um, We didn't, you know, in order to keep the episode at a reasonable length, we didn't go into every kind of evidence we could have. But I think those are also things that should be seriously considered. Uh, It's also possible that someone is hallucinating, but um, but it's it is something that uh, that, you know, shouldn't simply be dismissed. Our next feedback is from Bobby Hagedorn via email who writes, Thank you so much for your your episode on Animal Afterlife. I want to share my personal story with you. A beloved cat pet of mine passed away at the age of 20. I loved her so much and her death was a major blow. I felt it very hard. I guess I never thought that much about Animal Afterlife, but with her death, I started to think about it and just sort of pushed it aside at first as I mourned and tried to process everything. I went down the rabbit hole of Catholic views on this subject. To say it depressed me is a significant understatement. It triggered a crisis of faith in my life that was the deepest I've ever had. When I saw that your schedule for April included this episode, my heart dropped. I love your show. I've been listening since early 2020, and it is by far my favorite podcast. But I feared that my favorite podcast personality and one of my favorite Catholic personalities was going to just re-echo the sad theological opinion I had read so many times from so many others. I was so pleasantly surprised to hear your take. Believe me when I say that this issue has sort of consumed a lot of my thinking in the past months, and the conclusions that you came to in this episode are the ones that I had come to. I thought maybe I was crazy, but knowing that Jimmy Akin had a similar thought process makes me feel so much better. We don't know what happens to animals after they die because the church does not give us a direct answer. But I do have hope, and listening to your episode has lifted my spirit, fed my faith, and effectively ended my crisis of faith. I just wanted to thank you for this. You cannot possibly know the difference it has made for me. I feel like an incredible burden has been lifted, and my faith has been given a new life. Well, I'm so glad that uh, that the episode helped you so much. I'm 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 really gratified that it was able to to do that. Um, and you can count on me not to simply repeat common theological opinions without examining them. Um, I That's not what I'm about. I'm about examining things. And so even if I've heard a standard idea for ages, my inclination is to dig into it and question it and see what the evidence is for it. And 
So I'm open to possibilities that differ from the most common theological opinion. Um, It means I live with a little more uncertainty than some other people do, but that's okay. There's mystery in the world. And also, you know, I can be wrong. So and I, I never expect every, everybody to agree with me. So, you know, one doesn't want to read too much into my opinions, but I do try to make them informed and, um, and, and critically incisive of the subject I'm looking at. Our next feedback comes from Caleb Frank via email, who writes, If humans are only different than animals in kind, then why should we prefer human life over animal life in our moral judgments? If it's merely a case of degree, then wouldn't a severely mentally handicapped human be less morally valued than a typical functioning animal? Obviously, this cannot be the case as it leads to morally incorrect judgments about the very young and mentally handicapped. As an uninformed non-expert, my answer would be that humans are made in the image and likeness of God. But this episode did not mention this in either the reason or faith perspective, leading me to speculate that Jimmy Akin's perspective is that while humans are made in the image and likeness of God, This does not set them apart from animals, except perhaps by degree. The verse says humans are, are, but does not say animals are not. Okay, so um, the, I guess the first thing to say is you're correct that the verse in Genesis says that man is made in, in Genesis 1, says that man is made in the image of God. It does not say that animals are not but the context clearly implies that they are because God has already created everything else. He's created the sun, the moon, and the sky, and the sea, and the land, and the plants on the land, and he's created the birds and the fish, and then he creates the land animals. And then he says, now, let's make man in our image. So it's clear that at least the way the term image of God is being used in in Genesis, it indicates a characteristic of mankind that is unique, that is not shared by any other earthly creature. And um, and you're also right that that is the difference between us and the animals. We have the image of God. Animals do not. And that's one of the, and this is this is one of the reasons and you can argue it's the decisive reason why humans have rights and animals do not have rights. But the question then becomes, what is the image of God? I mean, it's obviously not a physical image. It's not a God doesn't have two eyes and a nose and things like that, you know, not apart from the incarnation. Um, So what is the image of God? Well, in the Middle Ages, there was a tendency to associate the image of God with a specific faculty that humans have like reason, or perhaps moral judgment, or something else that is intrinsic to us. It's, it's an ability that we have on this view. And if you, if you make that assumption, then um, it raises the question of, well, what abilities do we have that animals don't? And since we have the image of God, and they don't, um, you would want to find some ability that humans have that animals either, ideally, one that animals don't have at all. And that drove a bunch of the thinking on this subject in in kind of the middle period of church history. Um, but 
this is not the favored view these days. Um, one of the things that um, has been noted, and this is true both in biblical scholarship and in Catholic theology, is that the image of God does not appear to be reducible to a to an ability or faculty that humans have. Instead, it's something else. Um, in the ancient world, and especially in Egypt, which is where the Israelites had just come from, um, the king, the pharaoh, was regarded as the image of God, one of the Egyptian gods, like Horus. And um, and so he, you know, the the pharaoh was the living Horus. He's the living image of Horus on Earth, and um, and he thus had a special relationship with Horus, and he represented Horus to everyone else, and that's why he's the image of Horus. You find similar language. Um, actually about Jesus in St. Paul's writings, where St. Paul describes Jesus as the image of the invisible God. So it's not that Jesus physically resembles the invisible God, because the invisible God is invisible. He doesn't have a body. It isn't a physical resemblance. Instead, Jesus has a special relationship with his father, and he represents his father to us. So Jesus is the image of God in that sense. And what biblical scholars and recent theologians have concluded is that's what the image of God is in man. We have a special relationship with God, and we represent God to the created world. We're his official representatives. That's why the very next thing that Genesis says after saying, let us make man in in our image, is and let him have dominion over all this stuff. And then it goes on to describe mankind's dominion. It's because we're God's representative on the earth. That's why we are God's image to the world. Just like the Pharaoh was the image of the Egyptian gods and Jesus is the image of his father. They, they were representatives and that's what we do to the material world. And so this is something that is, um, is, well-received by biblical scholars, including Protestants and Catholics and Jewish people. So it's not a sectarian view. Similarly, um, it's it's been received in Catholic theology. In uh, 2004, the International Theological Commission published a paper on, it published a study for the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith on the image of God in man, and it was called Communion and Stewardship. And in the show notes, we'll have a link to communion and stewardship, so you can read about it for yourself, and you can see how in contemporary Catholic theology, the image of God is understood as being both mankind's special relationship with God and mankind's stewardship as God's representative of the created earth. Um, So if that's what the image of God is, then it's not necessary to find some ability that humans have that animals don't have in any degree. Now, obviously, to serve as God's representative, humans need some abilities. And for God to pick us rather than some other animal um, to be his representative on earth, you know, uh, it would be expected that we have some abilities that animals don't. um, And we certainly do. There are no other animals that are capable of 
building skyscrapers and, you know, writing sonnets and things like that. So we do have abilities that animals don't, but it isn't necessary to propose that we have something that they utterly, utterly lack in order for us to serve as God's representatives. You know, we can have, just like in a kingdom, the king, you know, or the the regent, let's say there's a king and he's got a regent, the regent can represent the king to the people, even though the regent has the same fundamental abilities as all of the subjects. So we have more than that. We have abilities that that at least in degree animals do not have. And when you understand what the image of God actually is, it's not necessary to find a unique ability that humans have and that everything else totally lacks. All right. Our next email comes from Connie Zinkowitz via email, uh, who writes, In the last episode on Pets in Heaven, there was one thing that really grated on my sensibilities. Jimmy used the term retarded several times to refer to persons with significant disabilities. I'm the mother of a young lady who is 36 and has very significant disabilities, and I have worked for years to get her included in the mainstream of life, both in school, parish life, and the community. The current way to speak of people with disabilities is people first. Therefore, you would say a person who uses a wheelchair, not wheelchair-bound. A person with cognitive disabilities, not retarded. A person with epilepsy, not an epileptic. These terms give respect to the person God created first with their gifts and challenges, not the thing or the condition that limits their mobility or their cognitive abilities. Thanks for considering this point of view in the future. Well, thank you, Connie. And I am sensitive to this issue. I often use what you call person first language regularly um, on various things um, and for a variety of different reasons. Um I'm sorry to hear about your situation, but I'm glad that you're there for your daughter and that you're able to do what you can to uh, get her included in mainstream life in, you know, your in school and your parish and in the community. Um, that's great that you're doing that. At the same time, our culture right now is infected by a kind of oversensitization to the use of language. And this is what's been driving a lot of attempts to revise English um, in recent years. And it's really only just in a few recent few years. Um, There are a couple of things to think about in that regard. One of them is that frequently when a term is used in order to avoid an unpleasant implication, it can result in something called the euphemism treadmill. Um, this is a, a known phenomenon in linguistics where you, su- in order to avoid an unpleasant connotation of one word, you substitute a new word for it. But eventually, the unpleasant connotation from the old word gets attached to the new word. And then you've got to find another one. And then eventually the unpleasant connotation attaches to that and it just keeps going. And you find yourself on a treadmill constantly having to use new terms to try to avoid unpleasant connotations. And so the effort to find a new way to refer to people with various disabilities is not always going to, in the long term, achieve its desired goal. Um, It's not saying it's not a it's not saying it's a bad thing to do, but it is something to say we don't want to we don't want to pin our hopes on this curing the problem forever. Um, Also, you know, 
I think the hypersensitization that's going on in our culture right now is itself destructive. If people get so sensitive to the use of particular words that they become enraged and or, you know, cancel other people, um, that's a problem because all of us are sinners and none of us are uh, are fully empathetic at all times and we need to cut each other slack. So um, I appreciate your perspective and I I do frequently on a variety of different subjects use person first language, um, but I can't promise that I'm always going to do so. And so when I don't, I would ask your indulgence. Very good. Uh, Jay writes via email, I just wanted to write a quick thank you note for such a beautiful, informative, and family-friendly podcast. Mysterious World's topics, along with Jimmy's clear, logical analyses, make it an edifying experience for all. Whether young or old, all can enjoy. Personally, I belong to a popular evangelical, non-Trinitarian Christian denomination and have been for my entire life. But hearing your clear explanation of Catholic doctrinal matters has opened my mind to other possibilities. While not abandoning abandoning my faith completely for Catholicism, I am able to see different perspectives now and realize that logical thinking people can come to different conclusions and yet agree on the fact that God is here for us all and can use anyone to strengthen our faith in unexpected ways. Your recent episode on animals going to heaven got me thinking quite deeply. My particular religion does not teach that we have souls, and while I still agree with that, it's interesting to think about animals being in heaven. I would personally just believe that God would remember the details of people or animals and recreate them in heaven or earth, depending on their particular path that God laid out for them as their hope for their life after death. The fact that the Bible mentions animals being a part of our future life is one of the biggest factors in pointing my thinking in that direction. Again, I thank you and look forward to many more topics in the years to come. Also, I love Secrets of Star Trek, and that's how I found you to begin with. Live long and prosper, Jay. Well, thank you very much, Jay. Uh, That's very heartening to hear. I'm very glad you're enjoying the show and that it's giving you new things to think about. Um, One thing that you might consider is you mentioned the idea of God recreating animals after their death, just like he might recreate humans. And if I understand your position correctly, um, you're coming from a from a religious group that teaches what's called Christian mortalism, where the individual dies at death and ceases to go out of existence. And then at a later point in the resurrection, God essentially recreates that person. Um, this is an idea that has been around in um, in some Christian circles, at least in recent times for a while. And there are some historical precedents. The there's been something that most Christians, though, have seen, apart from various biblical passages, there's been um, an, a, a, an intellectual issue that a lot of traditional Christians have seen as a problem um, with this perspective, which is if you really do die in, in the sense of you just go out of existence, I mean, you've got your body falls apart, there is no surviving soul, how is it still you in the resurrection? It would look like it's not you. It's a transporter clone. It's someone that that has your memories and is identical to you down to the, perhaps the molecular level, but without some continuity, without some element of the um, of the soul, uh, without some element of the person that survives death, 
and then which in the resurrection, the body is reconstituted around, it wouldn't seem to be the same person. It would just seem to be a twin of that person or a clone of that person. And so as a result of that, that's been one of the reasons that uh, in uh, most Christian circles, there's been, it's reinforced the idea that our soul survives death and that our soul is then the connecting element between the person who dies and the person who's resurrected so that they're the same person. Um, Anyway, something you may have already thought about that, but I would recommend uh, thinking about that to you. Thank you so much. Glad you're enjoying the show. Live long and prosper and kapla. <laughs> yes. uh, Thomas Bischoff writes via email, just wondering your thoughts on this. Around 30 years ago, just after graduating high school, I worked with my buddy at a restaurant. My friend's older brother had just given a dog to his parents and my friend Matt was complaining that the dog was always doing things such as barking at him, biting him on the back of his legs, waking his parents up when he got home, etc. One weekend after work, we were going to go out shooting pool, but we stopped at his house first so we could get cleaned up and change. I sat at the kitchen table while he went upstairs to take a shower, and while I'm sitting there, I see a dog leaning up against the wall in the hallway leading to the living room. I'm thinking, so this is the dog Matt's always complaining about. I patted my knee and called the dog over. He just looked at me, and his tail wagged a couple times, and I just dismissed it, saying, what a lazy dog. I don't know why I didn't go over and pet him. Usually I would. The next weekend, we get to his house. There's this black chow barking at the door. They said, oh, is this the dog you're talking about? Where's your other dog? My friend said, what other dog? So I described that it was a brown dog with a dark muzzle. He gets a look on his face and goes to find a picture and showed it to me. I said, yeah, that's the dog. He told me it was a dog he had in grade school, which died six to seven years earlier. And I said, well, I don't know what to tell you, but I saw that dog last weekend. The dog I did see wasn't transparent or ghostly in any way. Well, uh, Thomas, I think you asked what I thought about that. I think it's a fascinating experience, and I would love to have an experience like that myself, though I never have. Um As we talked about in Animal Afterlife, there are reports of animals appearing, even though the animal has died. This would be what's known as an apparition in parapsychology, where uh, someone or some dog, in this case, who has died appears. So that's why it's called an apparition. And um, it is reported frequently in apparitions that they look just like any other object you would see. Um, now, there are cases where people and I in a few episodes, we've talked about a kind of taxonomy or classification system I came up with for different levels of uh, apparitional clarity, like we did that in the bilocation episode. Um, but uh, the uh, it, the kind of the category one apparitions are ones that look fully realistic. You would not know anything paranormal was going on. Um, just by looking at the apparition, it has to be something else that tells you that. And so, yeah, people do report apparitions that look fully realistic. And this would seem to be, at least based on your description, it would at least sound like a fully realistic apparition of a deceased dog. Our next feedback comes from Jan Chekin, who writes via email. Hello, Jimmy and Dom. The episode was fantastic, as I have long wondered if animals do indeed have some sort of afterlife, and Jimmy's conclusion gives me hope. However, while listening to the episode, I had an objection to the possibility of animal afterlife popping into my mind, and I'd like to share it with you. 
How can, for example, a lion be good, according to its nature of being a lion, if it cannot hunt and be an apex predator? If the quote from the Bible that you mentioned is to be believed, in a literal and metaphorical way, animals will not fight, consume, or hunt each other in the afterlife. But wouldn't that mean that some part of the lion is not fulfilled according to its nature, namely the part of it being an apex predator, a hunter? Anyway, thanks for the fantastic work you both do. God bless. And you just got yourself a new patron. Best regards from Slovakia. Well, thank you so much, Jan, for your patronage. We really support it. We really appreciate it um, that you support us. And in terms of your question, I think that we can gain an insight by looking at what we know about humans. Uh, humans, like all organic life on Earth, is programmed to reproduce. It's an essential part of our nature. And even though not every individual human reproduces, we are built to. Uh, that's by God's design. And it's also, you know, evolutionarily, any organism that does not reproduce goes extinct. So humans are biologically repro programmed to reproduce. And yet, Jesus tells us in the Gospels that we will not be married and thus not reproduce in the resurrection. So we will not be fulfilling something that is part of our drive, uh, part of our fundamental human experience here on earth in this life. The conditions in the resurrection will be different in a way that we won't need to do that. Um, Jesus says that we will be like the angels in heaven, and that would suggest that, well, okay, now that we're immortal, now that we're in this resurrected state, we don't need to reproduce anymore because we don't need to replenish the race. Um, so uh, we won't we won't replenish the race. We won't reproduce. We won't be married. And because of the beatitude of heaven, we won't be unhappy about that. Um, so, uh, you know, we're told that all of the old experiences of suffering will have passed away. Revelation mentions that at the end of Revelation. And so the, even with humans, there can be significant aspects of our character. Some of sometimes some people find them very hard to control, like the urge to reproduce that um, that we won't simply won't worry about. And I would conjecture that the human drive to reproduce is analogous to a lion's desire to hunt and conditions in the resurrection will be such that lions won't need to hunt and won't desire to hunt. And uh, that there's even a hint in St. Paul's letters to the Corinthians uh, that could suggest that where uh, Paul says that, you know, the stomach was made for food and food for the stomach, you know, talking about the situation with humans in this life. But then St. Paul says, but God will destroy them both, suggesting that maybe in the resurrection we won't need food. Uh, maybe we'll have it anyway, but we won't need it to keep our bodies going. And maybe the same thing would be true of lions. Maybe they won't need to hunt in order to, uh, in order to continue existing in an immortal state. Tony L. writes on YouTube, kudos to you for calling out the modern unhealthy attachment to pets, using them as substitutes for children. It's something I've noticed, too, been disturbed by and not heard talked about much. I don't think it's a coincidence that the pet care industry has grown dramatically alongside contraception and abortion. Yeah, I don't think it's a coincidence either. As people have not had children, they have emotionally felt a void and tried to use pets as a 
convenient, easy, low commitment way of trying to fill that void compared to having a human child. And I think that is a that's a destructive thing. And our society um, is going to harm our society. It's already harming some societies and it will harm ours more in the future. So go out and have babies. <laughs> Well, I've been doing my part. I have five. So. Good. <laughs> uh, Dr. Aaron V on Twitter writes, I don't know that we need a whole episode on this. Seems simple, actually. Dogs and ponies go to heaven. Spiders and snakes do not. Well, there you have it, Aaron. And uh, thank you so much for uh, your perspective and your support of the show. I, I completely support the idea of spiders and snakes not being in heaven. <laughs> oh, I don't mind them being in heaven, just not the part where I am. <laughs> there you go. Our next set of feedback comes from episode 205 on Isdal Woman. Philip Smith writes on Facebook, great episode. One question you did not address. If a killer or killers was trying to hide her identity, why wasn't her body buried? Well, um, I can think of a number of reasons for that. One is that the killers could have been interrupted and um, and had to leave quickly and didn't have time to bury her. Or they may have thought they were being interrupted. Um, you know, they could have heard something in the woods and thought that's people coming. We better get out of here. Um, another possibility is this is the wilderness. And the, given the time of year they were doing this, her body wouldn't be found for ages. And presumably it would have experienced predation by that point. And there may have been nothing to find but some scattered bones. So they may have thought that nature would take care of the problem for them. Okay. Uh, moving about and manipulating objects on YouTube writes, no matter where I go now, I always carry a bag full of inexplicable groups of objects, random photographs and undecipherable documents so that if I happen to keel over for any reason, my death might be mysterious enough to warrant an episode of Mysterious World. Well, good for you moving about and manipulating objects. Thank you for your efforts to keep our world <laughs> mysterious. What is this? The, the old saying, uh, live live dangerously and leave an interesting corpse, I think is, is an old saying I heard once. Hmm. I've heard uh, a variation, but not that one. Yes. Uh, the Catholic Beth on YouTube writes, it's a well-known fact that often Eastern European pro-Soviet regimes would compel people to cooperate with spy missions, usually with threats to family members. It would explain her immense sadness if she was unwilling to cooperate, but had someone back home under threat. It would also explain why she might have viewed suicide as her only way out. These strange men may well have been reminding her of the threat that hung over her. It's certainly possible. Um, and I don't know. I think she probably was a spy. I'm probably. I don't know for sure. Um, I think she was probably a courier. And who she was a courier for, I don't know. It could well be um, that she was a, a spy for the Eastern Bloc. That's something we'll talk about with our next uh, correspondent. Um, also, though, she might have been, because spies can be double or even triple agents, she might have been working for more than one side. But I think that um, your comments on how Soviets would uh, compel people into spying missions and how they could mistreat people are well taken. Uh, Junk Jack 101 writes on YouTube, my bet is that she was a Soviet slash Warsaw Pact spy. It doesn't really make sense for her to have been part of the CIA or MI6 as they would have had information on the Penguin missile tests. It also seems highly unlikely that she would be an agent for the Mossad, as this time period was during and at around the War of Attrition, which was later followed up by the Yom Kippur War, 
So it seems as though Israeli intelligence would have other bigger concerns than Norwegian missile tests. However, the Soviets would have a high interest in the Penguin missile, as it likely has potential to be a serious threat due to Norway's close proximity to Russia. It seems like she might have been assassinated by NATO spies, but perhaps her comrades thought she was putting the spy ring at risk somehow. What do you think, Jimmy? Well, I think there's a significant likelihood that she was working for the Eastern Bloc. Um, I mean, I can't rule out that she was a Western spy, but, I, you know, there's certainly reason to think that she was an Eastern Bloc spy. Um, in terms of how she, how she got killed and who killed her, the first impulse of American or British spies like from the CIA or MI6 would not simply be to kill her, but to turn her. Um, because if, if you've got a Soviet intelligence asset, you want to use that asset. You don't want to just kill the person. If you can avoid it, you want to turn them. And so if you see a young and thus inexperienced woman serving as a Soviet courier, you could melt well, melt, you could well may want to make a deal with her and say, you know, we'll help you out in various ways if you let us see what's in the courier bag. And so um, so it's I mean, it's possible that Western agents could have killed her, but she was uh, at least apparently seen meeting with these people. Um, at least that's the impression that the story of Istal woman conveys that she was seen meeting with various people. And if they were the ones that killed her, then um, presumably they would have been other Eastern Bloc intelligence assets as well. And she did something that displeased them enough that they wanted to kill her in a foreign country and not even wait till she got back to wherever she came from. So um, that could support the idea that she was being a double agent for the West, or at least she was strongly suspected of being a double agent for the West. Uh, Jude Peterson writes on YouTube, the etymology lesson at the beginning was the most interesting part of this episode, and I'm not saying the episode was boring. Well, thank you, Jude. Um, I We had more than one person saying they really appreciated the etymology lesson. Uh, what Jude is referring to is at the beginning, I explained the origin of the word Isdal. Uh, is is uh, Norwegian for ice, and dal is the Norwegian word for valley, um, which we have two direct cognates of in English. If you think about the farmer in the dell, that's the farmer in the valley. A dell is a valley. And um, over hill and dale, that's over hill and valley. Dale is another word for a valley. So um, del, dale, and dal are just, are, they're all derivatives of the same root. And so east dal is ice dale or ice dell or ice valley. And I think it is fun to learn about the, uh, the origins of words. Uh, I also think it gives the listener a hook so that when they encounter a foreign word, if it's one they understand where it came from, it'll be less intimidating to them. Like, istal, what is that? Um, if you know its root, it becomes a more familiar term. It's like, oh, I get that. I know that. And then you can relax and think about something else. 
Uh, Nicholas Genio writes on YouTube, I disagree with your reasoning. Supposing that I was being forced to do nefarious work because of threats to my family, I find it more likely that the threats would disappear if my dead body were able to be identified. If, on the other hand, I disappeared with no one knowing that I'm actually dead, then my family would be more likely to be targets. Well, that assumes that um, that her family was under threat, and that may not have been the case. Um, she may have just been a young, inexperienced woman who was in a situation where uh, she was unhappy and she decided to end it herself. Um, so that is a possibility. Uh, it, it Also, if someone is depressed enough to be suicidal, they frequently don't care what their family is going to feel afterwards, or at least it doesn't deter them from the suicide attempt. So. Um, if she actually was suicidal, then I don't think that would I don't think that the threat to, if there was a threat to her family, I don't think that would have stopped her because with her dead um, or even vanished, there wouldn't be a reason to act against the family. Also, she may have counted on her body being found, um, which, in fact, it was she wasn't, you know, way far off a hiking trail, the professor and his daughters found her. So she may have been counting on that as part of her plan. Uh, our next feedback comes from episode 206, How We Found the Universe. John Gilchrist writes via email, I live in Panama City, Florida with my wife and our four kids. In 2018, Hurricane Michael devastated our area. The day before Michael made landfall, we evacuated and returned the day after landfall. We arrived in Panama City at night to what looked like a bomb had gone off. I had never in my life witnessed such destruction, nor the natural darkness it brought in its wake. After surveying the damage to our home and property and checking on our neighbors, I took a few minutes to collect my thoughts. I stared up at the cloudless night sky and saw the Milky Way cutting across above. It was so bright and vivid in ways that nothing I had seen in videos or photographs could do it justice. I was in awe of the vastness and glory of God's universe. I praised his name out loud and said a prayer. I felt a long-carried weight lifted and doubts I had about God lifted. I knew everything would be all right. Thank you so much for sharing that experience, John. That's very moving, and I'm glad that you enjoyed the episode. Uh, Anti397 writes via YouTube, How did the church react to Descartes' astronomical speculations? Well, um, as far as I'm aware, there wasn't any real concern with them. Um, not from a, I mean, there's not, as far as I'm aware, any any decree from the Holy Office commenting on them one way or another. It seems to me that um, Descartes was just proposing ideas that were within a, the legitimate, you know, range of opinion that uh, Catholics could have philosophically in terms of natural philosophy or science, as we now call it. And so I don't know of any particular reaction, although maybe there's a Descartes scholar out there that can give us more information. Uh, and now our next set of feedback comes from our episode 206.1 on the UFO UAP hearings in Congress. And Clint Ellis writes via email, I note that in the initial portion of the hearing, the official stated that the program would be forthcoming where possible, but without giving our adversaries knowledge of our capabilities. In that light, I think we can confidently conclude that true unknown encounters will never be discussed, as it would, by its nature, reveal gaps in those capabilities. Oh, well. 
Yeah, I think that um, they're they're never going to tell us the most interesting stuff, uh, at least not any time in the foreseeable future. Now, if aliens decide to sit down on the lawn of the White House, that could change everything. Uh, and then uh, man- moving about and manipulating objects in YouTube, uh, right, uh, wrote this reaction to that episode, dropping everything because there's a new surprise episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, but also checking to make sure it's not April 1st. Glad you uh, are enjoying the extra bonus episodes like this one, which is, um, you know, going to be regular now. Um, I I do look for ways to throw extra interesting things into the show, you know, extra episodes into the show that listeners will appreciate. And, yeah, always want to check to whether or not something <laughs> is April 1st. <laughs> uh, Daffa David writes on YouTube Jimmy, as much as I'm a devout Catholic and try to say the rosary every day one thing still bothers me how could some fallen society in a galaxy far, far away who believes in a creator ever recognize that Jesus Christ is the son of God and the Virgin Mary is the Queen of Heaven although I believe this, would you believe a similar story from an alien who's traveled from another galaxy to come to Earth to tell us that Zorg is the son of the creator and he looks just like them? God can save other societies any way he wishes, but he can't send another son of man to planet Vulcan when Jesus is the only son of God, can he? Well, why not? God is omnipotent, and so he can do anything that doesn't involve a logical contradiction. And I am not aware of the idea of Jesus incarnating here on Earth, excluding the idea of Jesus or God the Son, the only son of God, incarnating on some other planet as well. Uh, There doesn't seem to be a logical contradiction involved in that. He has his divine nature. He took on a human nature here on Earth. I don't see why he can't also take on a Vulcan nature. And if if an alien showed up, and there are science fiction novels with this as a premise, but if an alien showed up and said, so um, on our planet, the Son of God became incarnate, and he had a ministry, and he died on a cross and saved us from our sins. I'm going, I know that story. Um, That could be evidence that God decided to do the same thing on other planets. Um, So if there's no logical contradiction involved, I can't say God can't do it. Um, Now, what I would find challenging about a situation like that. And by the way, you can listen for our discussion of aliens and uh, and um, and religion. You can go back to uh, episode 55. It's at mysterious.fm slash 55, and we go into some of this stuff. Um, but uh, what I would find challenging is, okay, what's the relationship between this new information that the aliens are providing about what God did on their world and the revelation that God gave to us, because the um, the era of public revelation is closed. It closed with the death of the last apostle or the end of the apostolic period. And so nothing um, subsequent to that is binding on us. So what would happen if we talk to aliens who had apparently also received a divine revelation of some sort? It seems to me that what would likely happen is the church would investigate, and because people would want to know, is this right or not? The church would investigate, and they'd essentially treat it under the same rubrics that they treat private revelation. 
And they might then arrive at the same kind of finding that they do for private revelations. They might say there is reasonable evidence to believe this, but it is not part of public revelation. So it is not authoritative, but it is something that you could. So do not put divine and Catholic faith in this, but you could put what's called a human faith uh, in saying, yeah, this looks like it's accurate. And and so um, so we might regard revelation that's binding on aliens as private revelation from a human point of view. And if it included a parallel incarnation of the Son of God, I couldn't rule that out. Uh, then Linda Budd writes on YouTube, oh, that it could be a fly on the wall inside the classified hearing. I love the little bones they're throwing in the public, but really nothing more than what they've already said. Yeah, there are tiny scraps of information, but the substance is still the same. But I do appreciate them making the effort, and we should learn more going forward. And that does it for all of your feedback so far. You, too, can send in your mysterious feedback on any of the topics we cover on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. You can do that by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, sending us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world. You can join the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord or call our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. And while you're here, uh, if you're watching the video version of this at youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken, I am trying to grow my channel. We recently passed 30,000 subscribers, and so... On to 50,000. I would really appreciate it if you help us get there. So uh, please do subscribe and hit the bell notification so that YouTube will always let you know whenever we have a new video, whether that's Mysterious World or one of the others I do. And you can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion on our show notes at mysterious.fm slash 222. A, that's three twos, 222A. And remember to help us continue to produce the podcast please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>